Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by our guest is David Chuddock. Good afternoon or good morning, I should say, for you. Yep, it is. Uh, it's the morning here in, uh, here in South Carolina in the United States. Wow, lovely. Listen, it's, it's great for you to call in. Thank you so much. So, David, tell us, who are you? What are you doing? Well, where exactly are you calling us from? Yeah, so let's see. Let, let's let's start with uh, w- with where I am. I am I'm in Seneca, South Carolina, which is about an hour and a half from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, when there's no traffic, and it's about uh, maybe three and a half hours from Georgia when from Atlanta when there is traffic. So, professionally, I'm a I'm a financial planner. So, uh, as a certified financial planner, uh, I help client to use money as a tool just to actualize the life that they want. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get into it more later, but money's nothing. Money's a tool. That's all it is. And it's a tool to make, make, make either good things happen or prevent bad things from happening. Or money can even cause bad, quote, things to happen. Um, I have uh, been married for 21 years. So if you don't believe in miracles, uh, you should meet my wife because I definitely married up and she stuck with me for 21 years. Interestingly enough, and, and I don't harbor any bitterment, bitterness or resentment, but our anniversary is June 26th. And I'm not sure uh, how old you are. I, I think I'm a little bit older than you, but there was a very important event also happening on June 26th of this year. And that was... Top Gun 2 was coming out. And I was cool back when Top Gun 1 came out. And then COVID happened. So, you know, we had date night planned on our 21st anniversary. We're going to go see Top Gun 2 and then COVID happened. So that ruined our anniversary. So I don't know when it's coming out again or if it's if it's coming out. Uh, we have a 17-year-old uh, last year in the house. So you want to talk about a little bit of a midlife crisis a, a, a accelerator. And then we have twin 13-year-olds. So uh, they're turning into little men. Uh, they're getting deeper voices and they're getting bigger. So just a really interesting time in our lives where we're, we're you know, we're still parents and we'll always be parents, but our, our kids are definitely, they need us less, at least for, for the daily, the daily things. They don't need us to feed them and, and they can cook generally without any major fires, but um, yeah, so different, uh, uh, new phase of life for us, for sure. Awesome. So three boys then, is that why you worked that out correctly? Three boys, all, yeah. all boys. So we have, um, so, so Evan, when he was uh, two and a half or three, we said, you know what, let's, uh, you know, it's about time to, to, to start uh, trying to have, uh, have another one. And, you know, all things being equal, if we get a girl, that would be awesome. So we'll have a boy and a girl. And uh, so, uh, God gave us, he gave us two boys and there was a small time when we were in the OB's office and he was doing an ultrasound where he thought he saw three of them. And, uh, I don't believe in deadbeat dads, but I, you know, I don't <laughs> leaving that room maybe seem like a, a reasonable option at that point, but no, in all seriousness, 
uh, twins are such a blessing and they're having two babies is much harder than having one baby, but maybe at two years old on having two, two year olds is much, much, much easier than having one two year old because they have each other to play with and they've been best friends and yeah, they're boys and they punch each other in the face and, and, but, but they really have occupied each other and, and, because if they don't play with each other, guess what? Mommy or daddy has to play. And, and sometimes mommy or daddy has to cook dinner and, and can't sit on the floor and, and play, uh, play cars or do whatever ever little boys uh, do. So, so yeah, yeah. Twins are definitely a different experience, but uh, it's, it's, it's a blessing for us. And it's also, they've literally had a built-in friend since, since day one. That's music to my ears. Cause I have, twin girls and they're coming up to coming up to two years of age so yeah this is listen you you just made my day and, and everything you've just said so thank you yeah yeah and one thing with our boys that it was interesting when they were young is invariably you, you take twins especially when they're babies on up to two or three when they're still in that cute age um some little old lady's always going to ask you, are you twins? And I don't know about yours, but ours, they just, they would say that they're not twins. And I don't know what it was about almost being embarrassed. So we did some reading and, and, and some of the how to raise twins books said, you do not refer to them as the twins because they're not the twins. They're separate people. You know, there's Eric and then there's Alex. They're not one glob of human. And um, so we've really never, you know, we've purposefully never referred to them as the twins. Now, some of their friends, parents might say, hey, we're going to have the twins over. Um, but, but yeah, there was some, some subconscious weird discomfort with them being referred to as the twins or even, uh, even admitting that they were twins. So they joke about that, um, that they had a, a triplet that, that uh, they ate in the womb, you know, just as boys, as boys make crazy jokes. But, but yeah, twins is just, it's, it's been a fun journey for us for sure. Mm. No, we're saying we had a we had a surprise when the uh, they were they were scanning and they were like there's two heads. It's like okay, <laughs> it's like I I just blurted out as you do slightly uncomfortable saying is there two bodies? Um, That's a good question. Which, <laughs> it was, and then of course they went on the hunt for the third one. I was like, please don't. You know, two's enough. I don't need a third yeah, child yeah. at this time. Yeah. So my wife is she's five feet tall and. Uh, our boys, one was five one, the other one was four nine or four ten. So they were they were not very small as far as size wise, but that's still ten pounds of baby, and you know however much more gunk and liquids are in there. So when you're five feet tall, there's not a whole lot of expansion area. So she was she was miserable for the last uh, I don't know month or two or three, but uh, they made it. I forget. Women have all these dates memorized, but they made it basically full term. Uh, they were, they were, I think 36 or 35 weeks. They, the, there was C-section and it, it was just interesting uh, how many people are in the delivery room when twins are, are being born and they were fine. They, you know, there was no, no issues. Um, but Eric, uh, so we had Eric and Alex, we had the names picked out. So Alex came out first. So he became Alex by alphabetical order. Um, and then Eric came out and they're not identical, but they look similar, but Eric was very red. So we had Eric the red. That's how we told them apart when they were babies. And of course we had Alexander the great. So we had some historical figures in our, uh, in our hospital room. Oh, awesome. It's great, great memories to have as well. And, you know, such a blessing for them to come along. So it's awesome. Awesome. It is, you know, and, and time going by, it's just, you know, looking at pictures of babies, I, there's a picture in my office 
um, of a skinny guy with hair or, or thicker hair holding my kids. And he looks, this guy looks a little bit like me, but I, I don't know who this guy is. Good looking guy. Um, but uh, yeah, he's, he's holding my kids as babies. I don't know who he is. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. So, so tell us, David, roughly, I mean, what, what does fire in the belly mean to you? Yeah, so I come from <clears throat> I come from a background where I don't want to say we were we were poor and homeless, but you know money was never plentiful. We had everything we needed, but but um, you know looking back, I, I do see some financial struggles and decisions that my parents made that I just thought were normal. And and you know I think sometimes you look back and you say, well, you know maybe other kids got bigger Christmas presents or things like that, and you you just that was normal. And then, so I've always had this uh, kind of a desire to make something and, and to, to, to have some control over, over my own financial family and everything that comes along with it, the, the destiny. Um, have a, I've had a few jobs where you're on salary and it just, the salary thing just never worked for me mentally. Like you, I just couldn't comprehend why would I try harder to make the same amount of money? And maybe, you know, at the end of the year, you get a couple hundred dollar bonus, which in the scheme of things doesn't, doesn't really matter. But why would I do all the extra things for lack of a better term? Uh, if, if there's no additional reward now, I believe in doing a good job and, and, and you do owe your employer, uh, you know, the duty to do your best, but um, you know, true excellence in anything is all encompassing and, and just that concept of, of set salary, just that's never just worked for me. I've just never, that's never gotten me. I guess that doesn't put a fire in my belly. Cool. So, you know, really for you in terms then of, you know, the understanding and, and, you know, actually growing, you know, the time for money side, so you, you know, stepping away from that is, is it's never been in your agenda to sort of work for somebody and just do a job, right? Yeah. So I was, I, um, even in college, you know, I had a couple hourly jobs just working at t-shirt shops, but, but I had to, I had to work during college and, and that was kind of normal to me, but, um, it was very character building because while other kids were drinking and doing college things. I mean, I drank very, very little in college, made up for it later on. And we may get to that point, but um, you know, I almost looked at, you know, just working more hours, you know, almost as kind of a commission thing. So if you're getting paid X per hour and if you could squeeze in a few more hours working, that's just a bigger paycheck. So I was, I always had this, just this desire to make a bigger paycheck, whether it was, you know, working an extra hour or two, getting a second job or, um, I started playing tennis when I was when I was uh, a, a teenager, and it was kind of a blessing in disguise because wh- when when I moved, I, I was pretty good baseball player. Then we moved, and for whatever reason, I didn't make the baseball team, and I took up tennis a little bit later than than other people would, and uh, started college. Could have played tennis for a smaller college, and. And, uh, but I decided, you know, I was going to teach tennis lessons at the club where, where I, where I, where I learned. So ten, when you're teaching lessons, you know, there's no, when you're that level of a tennis pro, there's no salary. So you're getting paid, you know, based on how many lessons you give or how many, how many kids show up to lessons. So 
you know, between that and another hourly job during college, I mean, I was working 40 hours a week plus, but I was figuring out some ways maybe to get, you know, that extra three-year-old to come to the little tennis clinic. Because if you could have four or five, six, seven, eight little four-year-olds come to a tennis clinic, each paying five or six or seven or $10, you know, for that hour, that turns out to be a pretty good little part-time, part-time gig. So I figured out that, hey, if you take uh, if you offer a free birthday party for every kid and say, you know, we'll do a free tennis birthday party for you, no charge, you bring the cake, but invite your friends. Well, then guess what? You know, a bunch, uh, you know, th they're five or six or seven more five and six year olds come out and get, they get exposed to the game. And I actually was pretty fun with the little kids and I could be goofy and, and teach them to play. So, you know, little things like that started to teach me that with some ingenuity, you could figure out how to solve problems and deliver value and, um, you know, and generate revenue because, you know, revenue is kind of important. That's interesting how you're actually sort of already you were looking at the mechanism to, you know, sort of change the structure. So whether it be, as you say previously, you know, you mentioned commission structure or you mentioned there in terms of, you know, bringing the business to you. So, you know, low cost attraction but mm -hmm. you know high return and things like that so you you know that mechanism was already coming into play for you yeah so you could look at it as two ways you we could say well so you're you're 18 19 years old and and we're not really giving you anything other than a tennis court and you know percentage of the revenue that comes in so i think i got half or 60 percent of the revenue so you could say, well, that's horrible because I'm not guaranteed anything. Or you could say, well, let me figure out a way to get six, seven-year-olds to come do a tennis clinic. And that's $60 and I'll make, probably it would have ended up being $42. Well, 42 bucks an hour when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you know, and in college, you do that a couple times a week. And that's a pretty good little part-time income. Whereas if you went to flip burgers for whatever minimum wage was back then, uh, that's, there's a lot of hours to do that, but you know, you, you, with anything, you, you have some risk. So when it rains, guess what? There's no tennis lessons. So there's no, there's no revenue. Um, you know, if, if, if kids take up other sports or, you know, who knows what could happen. So, so I, I always saw the, the potential, um, as being greater than the risk of, of just, going and, and working somewhere and making X dollars per hour as the only source of, of income or revenue. Um, interestingly, so my, my first major in college was marine science. And I went to Coastal Carolina University and who doesn't want to study whales and fish? I mean, it seems like a, you know, pretty fun thing to learn. And, um, and it was, it was interesting. And we did some cool research stuff. We walked through swamps and took water samples and we actually did a, a research cruise off the coast of Charleston and I threw up for two or three days but I remember I went to the to the career office and and said you know what you know with a bachelor's degree or maybe a master's I mean not that money is all that I'm after but at a point I will be supporting a family and you know what's the most money I could make with this degree and they told me I said I need to change my major because as as interesting as as studying fish and whales and everybody thinks they're going to end up being the director of SeaWorld but there's only one director of SeaWorld uh you know it just the potential was wasn't there and and I didn't want to subject 
my family to financial limits. You know, I don't think money solves all the world's problems, but certainly lack of money creates some issues. And, and um, you know, it just didn't make sense for me to spend four years or more in studying a, a craft and then have, have, have a fairly limited income of, of what I believe limits, uh, limit was at that time. No, it makes a lot of sense. It really does. So take us right back, though, David. Where where are you from originally? Talks about your upbringing, your background, and and you know, really who Junior David was. Sure. Wow. Well, that's you know, ever that seems like such a such a long time ago. So I grew up in in Queens, New York. So a little bit of a different different part of the world. Um, uh, my dad was a window cleaner in in New York City. So windows need to be cleaned and. Um, uh, he, you know, he was the guy that would be, you know, either on a scaffolding or on a belt uh, cleaning windows and in, in, in skyscrapers. So, you know, interesting job. And, and it's interesting. I, I, I don't love heights. Uh, I don't even love getting on a ladder and getting on a, on a short roof, but yet, you know, he, he um, di- didn't bother him. And I don't know if it's one of those things that you just get used to, but, um, but yeah, I, I don't love heights. Uh, my mother stayed home with us uh, for the most part. And, uh, you know, we, we, we had a, we had a good, good, uh, good upbringing, good, good childhood, uh, you know, a loving family, um, you know, lived, uh, you know, lived in Queens and uh, had, had two grandmothers that were, you know, nearby. So we had a, had a, had a really good family structure. You know, I always look back very positively, um, you know, at, at, at childhood. And, and, and I think that is a blessing because I, I know that there are a lot of kids in this world that are, you know, they're born in a hole for, for, for lack of a better term where, you know, you and I, as adults, we can screw up our own lives and, and we have some say, but, but, you know, kids that are born into difficult situations with, you know, abuse or extreme poverty and, or health issues, I just, you know, you always feel for kids because they, they haven't been around long enough to, to really have an effect on, on their, on their circumstances. So, so yeah, so, you know, had, had, had a good, uh, had, had a really good childhood. Um, so my family decided, uh, fifth or sixth grade that, you know, Hey, let's get out of New York city. New York city is, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a rat race. And, and, uh, so we, we bought a little motel up in, 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 a couple hours north of, of, of Manhattan in the Catskills and, and, um, you know, kind of ran that and, uh, cold, you know, cold weather and kind of a seasonal business. And, um, you know, looking back, I, I, I probably didn't know it at the time, but there, I think there were a few more financial struggles, um, with my parents kind of running a business that, you know, they had never run before. And then also the seasonal nature, uh, you know, during the, the winter, obviously there's skiers coming into town and, and, and purchasing hotel rooms. There were some festivals and in, in the, in the, in, in the summer, but, um, you know, kind of, I think revenue was at real highs and real lows and, and, and maybe they did, you know, they may not have been quite ready for that. And then just owning a business, uh, there's, when something breaks, you either need to have the money to pay someone to fix it, or you have to fix it yourself or figure out how to fix it or do without. And, 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 you know, I think there were some, some struggles with, um, you know, with my parents just, you know, and being, and being entrepreneurs. So, uh, 
we were there a couple years and then we moved down to uh, down to Myrtle Beach in, in South Carolina, a little bit warmer weather. And my parents kind of started a, a cleaning company doing some some window cleaning and, and things like that. Uh, of course, not on skyscrapers, which which probably a little bit easier work. But, you know, they, they kind of built built that to a reasonable level, uh, you know, just a small business paying the bills. But, you know, I always felt like I wanted to you know, wanted to build something and wanted to have, have some, some ability to, to have, have some additional, additional control and, and feel fulfilled, you know, in what you're doing. So I was, you know, just an average level junior tennis player, kind of, kind of from the time we lived in South Carolina, played some tournaments. Yeah. I had gotten a late start from where other, other kids start, uh, start, but I managed to, uh, uh, Asked the the guy who I took lessons from, you know, during my first first summer of college, say, hey, you know, do you need help doing your your clinics and such? And I can certainly hit balls to eight to ten to fifteen year olds. So started doing that, and I just, you know, I kind of just fell in love with that concept of having some control and and building up a clientele and and figuring out how to how to get some more kids to come out and. And quite honestly, I just really enjoyed working with kids, you know, not being the greatest tennis player in the world, you know, working with highly, highly advanced 18 year olds was maybe not where my unique skills uh, would be. But I was really very, very good with with five and six and seven and eight year olds, Uh, you know, a good combination of of goofy and likable, but also in charge and teaching them skills at a progression. And and I did, you know, I read books and back then you didn't have YouTube to watch videos, but I got my hands on some, you know, cassette tapes up from, from the USTA on how to, you know, train kids with progressions, maybe carrying a ball on a racket. So for instance, we had the restaurant restaurant game and you'd ask a four-year-old, you know, what's your favorite food um, and what's your favorite drink? So then they'd have to walk to a tennis ball cart and they'd have to put on their, holding their tennis racket flat, they'd have to put a tennis ball, which might've been their favorite food and another tennis ball, which was their favorite drink and maybe another tennis ball, which was their dessert. Then they had to walk back to you, you know, without spilling the food. And um, you know, that just teaches coordination and racket skills and things like that. And you can then take that to different progressions. So um, really enjoyed teaching with with progressions. And, and I felt like I was good at, at teaching. And that we'll get to later. But, uh, you know, that's kind of the way I run the financial planning practice as well as more of a teacher for people who want to uh, want to learn. So and then another opportunity that I saw was, well, in the tennis community, everybody's at at least a certain level income and up. Uh, so when there's, when there's a mother bringing a, 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 a child to a tennis clinic during the day, that means that the mother doesn't have a job and, 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 and probably is married to someone with, you know, at least a middle income on up to pretty extreme wealth. So then you start thinking, well, you know, we're dealing with, mid late twenties to mid thirties, healthy women, why not start uh, to, to try to get them involved? So we actually built a fairly good little beginning women's uh, tennis uh, team. And we did some, some mother, mother child tennis clinics. So what's more fun for, for a parent than to uh, do a little tennis clinic with their four or five year old. So 
just, it, it was cool stuff. And, and that was kind of the birth of the entrepreneur. Even though I didn't own the club, I didn't necessarily have a financial risk of spending any money other than some books on uh, educational materials and my own certifications. I did kind of have the, the beginnings of figuring out how to offer more value and differentiate yourself. A lot of tennis teaching pros, kind of their value selling point is, hey, I played on the pro tour and I was number 200 in the world. And, and I, I, that's just one, I don't have that. Um, you know, I was a very, very good club level, you know, the better, one of the better players at most clubs, but not someone who you would see on TV at all. So. Again, I'm struck by the sort of, you know, the, the entrepreneur side sort of shining through. And it sounds like even, that seems to have come from your parents as well. You know, they, they multiple businesses keep trying, keep trying, you know, in terms of, you know, cleaning the windows, doing all that side. But then for you, it's the power of the upsell. So it's you taking a, an opportunity that is what it is. But then, as you say, looping in, the mother is looping in, you know, can you sort of make it into a club? Can you make it into a party? Can you do something else? Which that's not generally normal behavior. Yeah. So, when moving forward a couple years, so I, I, I taught tennis and, and there, there's two types of tennis courts. There's the hard courts, which are basically concrete. Then there's clay courts and clay courts require maintenance. So um, brushing and watering. So, you know, I even, I, I, I talk with club management and I would come to the tennis club before going to class and I'd brush off the clay courts and that took an hour, hour and a half. And that was a little bit of the steady money because that was just hourly wage. Um, and then I'd go to class and then I'd come back and I'd teach some lessons and, and, you know, with tennis or any other type of recreation, you're working when other people are not working. So, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, you know, to, to work from four until nine is not a big deal, but you know, later on in life, you may not want to do that when you, when you do have a family, but um, kind of worked my way through college and then literally kind of amazingly, the director of tennis job came open right when I was about to graduate. And, you know, this was a bigger resort and normally a director of tennis would have been at least 10 years older than me and had, you know, a much, much uh, uh, more prestigious playing career. But um, the director of the club you know, as I started to express interest, he said, well, this is going to be a really hard job. I said, literally, you know, I looked at him and I said, my life can only get easier. So as hard of a job as I agree that this will be, do you want to know what my life has been like? I've been getting here before 6am. I've been doing court maintenance. I've been showing up at school. I've been studying, doing what I have to do. I've been teaching lessons. I've been, you know, I actually did grow the program, get more kids out there playing tennis. So, so yes, I agree that this will be a challenging job but I will literally have more free time with this job that you're telling me is so challenging than I do now. So, so the, the, the not having the silver spoon through college, uh, which I really didn't even know that I didn't have. Um, but not having that was a, was a huge character builder for me and kind of set the foundation to be able just to work hard. And, and, and I've always worked hard. Um, and, and just out of, out of necessity, you know, had to, you know, use a student loan to buy my first you know, $800 car and the check engine light never went off. So <laughs> you had to drive with the steering wheel turn because the alignment was so far out and, and you could literally, uh, nobody could align the car to where it could go straight. But, but that was normal. That wasn't a big deal. And, and, and that wasn't, uh, 
you know, I probably enjoyed that car more than some other 18, 19 year old kid whose parents bought him a BMW that was brand new. I'm struck by your language in terms of, you know, you're saying you, you know, there was, there wasn't a lot of wealth in the family as such, you know, you're saying there was, you know, no silver spoon. There was, you know, there wasn't a top grade uh, tennis player and things like that, but that also seems to be you strive in, in the slight underdog that that's what's coming across. Is that a fair? I I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I think, I I think that having, I think in most areas of life and in business and even in sport, kind of the idea is to reach whatever your potential is. So I don't know if, if you're an athlete at all, but you know, if you're like me, you don't have world-class athletic potential. Very few people do. There's such a small segment of the population that can be world-class, but the goal is to be as good as you can be. And I think that sometimes having, having it too easy earlier in life maybe takes away some of that that drive, you know, if, if you've never had to. Um, and I think that's where uh, I'm sure in your part of the world, soccer or, or football, as, as you call it, um, you know, sometimes football, it's just a way out, you know, in, and in some third world countries where that's it. I mean, you either make it to, to, uh, to a big professional league or you're just a farmer in some small town in Central America that will literally never get out of poverty. So, so working, and I was never certainly at that level of poverty, but um, I, I think that, you know, having that motivation to, to, to just dig and dig and dig to get to what you consider, what you consider a successful level is, is a big, big motivator for sure. And I think it's a male thing too. I think that when you're a late teenager and early 20s, you know at a point that there will be a family, there will be kids and kids are not cheap. And you don't know how much kids cost until you financially, until you have them. But, um, you know, I, I always had, I guess, especially seeing that there were people that were writing, you know, $30 an hour checks for tennis lessons. So you start thinking, man, you know, in, in four, five, 10 years, I'm gonna have some kids. And if they play tennis or something else, where am I going to get $30 an hour two or three times a week for, for lessons? Well, you, you got to figure out a way to bring that revenue in. And, and that was always in the back of my mind for sure. I love the, the problem solving that's just coming in. You know, you're, you're assessing the situation. You're, you know, you're seeing, I mean, like a balance sheet or something else, you know, you're saying, here's, here's where we're at, you know, here's our oncoming, here's our outgoings and, and how can we manipulate and change that? Well, what's interesting is, you know, in the, the old job interview question of what's your biggest weakness and you take your strength and turn it into weakness. Well, I think I am a pretty good problem solver, but I also think that that's held me back over the years because it's easy when you're starting to build a team to be the chief problem solver because you're, you have pretty good problem solving skills, but then guess what? You end up having every problem on your plate. Uh, so, so being a good problem solver, has been an asset, but it's also been a liability because it's, I've, 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 I've used that skill and, and, but I've not developed the, 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 I've not fostered a, a, a culture of everybody solves their own problems and then comes to me maybe when, when it's unsolvable. So I've been the chief problem solver for a long time in my organization. And that can be a burden, you know, when the biggest problems are what ends up on your desk, 
there, I mean, there are some problems in any business that there's no owner's manual for it. It's something that happens once a year and you have to figure out how to solve it. And, you know, if you're getting all of those on your desk, that can be frustrating and, and stressful, quite frankly. So, so yeah, I, I, but, but yes, I mean, it, it's true. I'm, I'm a problem solver, but, um, uh, you know, moving forward in my career, I, I definitely at a point saw a need to, to not be the chief problem solver for sure. Control freak. You know, I, I think there's an element of control freak. Um, I think there's there's also uh, another weakness is I've hired some doozies in my life. Uh, just, and I think your your team around you needs to be stronger than you in areas. And um, I've hired some people that just weren't strong, and and maybe there was some sense of. Uh, well-meaning, you know, kind of Christian, like I'm going to help these people out and they're going to do a good job. And well, that just has never worked as far as giving someone, I've given some people some chances and, and, you know, for whatever reason, it, it just didn't work. So then that creates more problems and, and um, maybe sales are, are down and which is reduced revenue, which creates other problems. So, um, so, maybe there's a bit of control freak. And then there was also at a time, I think there was the legit, uh, legit fact was I was the best and only problem solver given who we had on, 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 on the team. So hire, uh, bringing more quality on the team definitely uh, became, became a, uh, a huge prior, priority for me at a point for sure. And tell me, do you have siblings, brothers, sisters? I do. I do. So I have a sister who's a couple years older than me and I have a brother who's a couple, couple years younger than me. So, mm. um, we're a, a different group. Uh, we've, we've, um, we, I like to stay in life. You know, there's, there, as long as you're not hurting anybody, there's no good or bad. There's just different. And, you know, some people may choose to live a simple life on very little money and be very happy. Other people, uh, you know, may choose to be a high driver. And so we all kind of have different, different personalities, but, um, uh, uh, and, and again, neither one's right, neither one's wrong, but I think, you know, they're just different personality types, uh, for sure. Well, it's always interesting. I mean, you know, you're all cut from the, well, similar cloth, but yet it's a completely different outcome. It's always, uh... yeah, yeah, it is. Well, going back to our twins. So Alex is very, very smart. I mean, he's, he's in eighth grade but grade class and he would, he would, he would be in there and he'd be okay. Eric is very, very smart, but just not at that extreme level. Um, but Eric is a sick athlete and he's very determined. So, you know, I think as siblings, maybe even subconsciously, they both develop their, you know, their thing for lack of a better term. Uh, Eric is kind of goofy and, and he can make you laugh. And, and Alex is a little bit more cerebral and he just knows things, facts and, and, you know, that, that you and I probably wouldn't even know. So, so it is interesting how siblings in the same household, but you could say cut from the same cloth, but you might think you treat both of your girls exactly equal, but I don't think you do it just even in, yeah, as they get older and have more personalities, I mean, one of them is going to get more of part of you and the other one's going to get more of another part. And even one might like 
physical affection. The other may not. And, and then, you know, they're just going to kind of become what they become. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously you love them both and they're both in the same environment, but you probably will have some different experiences with both of them as well. And over time, that'll just help them to become who they become and, and, and who they become is going to be the right person, uh, regardless of what it is. So tell us, I mean, junior, junior David, sort of mid-teens, what were you going to do when you sort of grew up? I was going to be a professional baseball player like everybody else who lived in, um, who lived in, in New York. So we had the Mets and the Yankees and uh, interesting story. So back, uh, the Mets won the World Series in 1986 and, and I'll, I'll even, I'll divulge the secret. I would have been 13 um, then. Um, but, um, they started getting good. They, they weren't good back in 1969. They were good. And then in the early seventies, they were good. And then, uh, they, they had 10, 12 years where they were a horrible team. So back in 83, they, they recruited some, uh, some, some players in their farm system. They started kind of making a run to where they were a good player, good team. So a lady that lived three doors down for us worked for NBC and, um, and gave, uh, gave us two tickets to go see the Mets at Shea Stadium. So never been to a baseball game. Um, interestingly, living in New York, my parents were not particular baseball fans, even with the Yankees being there. So my dad and I, we have these two tickets, and we go to Shea Stadium. And um, a lot of this may not mean a whole lot to you being in your part of the world, but it's kind of a big deal. So we, we head to Shea Stadium. We have these tickets. We don't, you know, it's in section whatever, seat whatever. So we don't even know what that means. We, um, we show up and, and, and the first, when, you, when you're in the stadium and then you, the green field is just a sight you'll never forget, just how green it is after walking from the parking lot and everything. So we find our tickets and we are sitting literally front row right on top of the visitor's dugout. Like you can't buy these tickets. They are, they're, they're corporate tickets. So that ruins every baseball game forever because you can never replicate that. And that night, now this was a big deal for me because being, I was probably 11 at the time, uh, you know, 11 year olds have time and mental energy to memorize baseball stats and everything. So Nolan Ryan was pitching and uh, this was, he and Tom Seaver were going back and forth on the all-time strikeout list at that point in history. So literally one start, Nolan Ryan would be ahead. And then the next start, uh, Tom Seaver would be ahead. So this was the night that Nolan Ryan was pitching and he went ahead on the all-time strikeout list. So I'm sitting in the front row, corporate seats, seeing one, you know, some people may say the best pitcher of all time, but certainly nobody would argue that he's outside of the top 10 of all time pitcher pitching from the front row. So yeah, you can't ever replicate, uh, replicate that again. So, but you know, I thought, you know, I'm going to play baseball and make it to the major leagues and everything. And, and, um, you know, enjoyed playing baseball. And, you know, in New York with the Mets and the Yankees, it is, especially back then, it was a pretty big deal, baseball, you know, the, the pastime. And that, you know, the late 70s and early 80s was kind of a heyday for baseball in the United States. So, you know, enjoyed that. And, and yeah, I, I was going to be a, a, a professional baseball player. Never, never had a chance, was never that good. But, you know, you don't know that when you're young. And of course, you know, you're going to end up on, on a field. And, uh, and, and do that. So that was, you know, that's what I thought I was, uh, thought I was going to do. Didn't happen. I'm waiting to hear at what point you're going to come across a whale or a sea creature or something else <laughs> to explain how the hell you ended up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, doing you know, science. well, that was just, uh, you know, so, so you're looking at, 
uh, Coastal Carolina University is 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 where uh, is just outside of of, um, of Myrtle Beach where where we live. So, you know, going off to college just really financially wasn't wasn't much of an option. So, you know, you apply to the university, and um, uh, it's a Division One school, so it, it's not a, a certainly not a top tennis school, but I could have scrapped to kind of hold on to the last place on the team and where I could have, but, but, you know, there wouldn't have been any scholarship money and you still have to have, have, have money to live on. So that's, you know, I decided not to scrap for the, for the place on the team and, 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 and teach tennis. But, um, you know, you just look at the, the list of majors and you say, well, you know, English, I don't want to study English. Why would anybody study that? Um, you know, business is kind of cool, but what are you going to do with business or so, but they do have this cool, cool major called marine science. And, and there's probably some cute chicks that want to study, study whales and everything. So, um, yeah, so, so that was what I signed up for. And I got into that, uh, got into that program and it was really interesting. It really was. Um, and coastal Carolina, the, the bachelor's program is almost equal. It, it's a, it's a high level program. So the bachelor's program is almost equals to a master's somewhere else. And being close to the coast, we did get to do hands-on research and everything. So, so and I enjoyed that. But um, you know, two things: the the money, or the money potential, and then uh, we, uh, with Coastal being a very good marine science school, they had some connections with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, so freshmen actually got to go down to Charleston and there was a NOAA ship and it would basically pull an instrument that's shooting sonar down um, and basically do grids and it would shoot sonar down. And, and from that, they would tell how deep the ocean was. And they, what they were doing is measuring um, erosion. So were there berms out there and, and um, for, for, for ge geographical purposes, and that was super interesting, but it just happened to be, during a storm and seasickness is real. I mean, it is horrible. So I, I and, and most of the other students, it, we, we, we suffered um, just a little bit of nausea. And that was, uh, you know, another, another factor because with a marine science degree going into the Coast Guard is a potential career. And, and that's not an entrepreneurial thing, but it certainly offers some stability and government benefits. And, and, you know, if you're in the Coast Guard for a long time, you know, you certainly could retire with a good pension and it would be, uh, but, you know, that wasn't something that necessarily drove me, but I thought being in the Coast Guard might be a fun gig. But then um, after spending a couple of days out on rough seas, I just decided, you know, the open water is cool and I wouldn't mind going on a cruise for vacation, but uh, definitely, definitely not my thing. So uh, the whales and the crustaceans, uh, they left, they left my world. So I decided coastal Carolina had, <clears throat> had an interdisciplinary studies program where you basically could work with advisors and, and, and come out with a bachelor's degree. Um, and it, it was almost a design your own. So, so I took about a third of my upper level courses of business, um, a third in, 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 um, like marketing, in a third in physiology type um, exercise courses and um, you know with the plans of having a uh, you know a kind of a good well-rounded background to help me go into kind of a, a sports 
you know, looking to pursue the, 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 the tennis thing and um, have a, you know, physiolo- physiological background, but also management and, and marketing and business and everything else. So, so I do feel like I, I did get a good, well-rounded education. And I think in a lot of cases, if you're not going into a career where you need a very specific college degree, then I think you just need a college degree um, or having a college. Because a lot of people, they get a degree in whatever they get it in and they, they don't even, you know, they, they don't end up in that field. So, you know, I think a good broad business degree, if you're not exactly sure exactly what you want to do is a, um, is a good thing for sure. And I remember go, you know, in college, one of the things that I learned and I just remember thinking, there's just so much in the world that I don't know and that I'll never know. And that was kind of almost the major, the major theme for me was that there's just so much out there to, to learn. And um, I didn't necessarily have a, have a desire to learn it all, but just there's just a huge world, different parts of the world, different languages. To, you know, science is just so broad that you could never know it all. So it was, it was definitely fascinating. I think it's, it's so poignant to say that. I mean, it, you know, degrees are, you know, I chose a, a discipline and I chose an ability. You know, mm-hmm. as for the actual content, it's kind of going, learn whatever you want. As you say, it's the, uh, the, so the ability and the, the application is, is the bit that shows the. Well, and I think I took three college level calculus courses. I couldn't do a calculus cor- pro- problem right now if you paid me, <laughs> um, you know, but I could ask Siri how to do it. Um, and I'm sure I could Google how to do it. So, you know, the world has changed as well. now that we all have a supercomputer in our pocket at all times as uh as well. So, so yeah, so, I mean, I, I enjoyed that time. It was, you know, it was just constantly on the go, but um, I think a lot of college kids also kind of get into some trouble in college. I didn't have the time, like literally didn't have the time. So, I mean, I may have, you know, this is not an exaggeration. I think I drank two or three times in those four years and, uh, and, and, you know, so maybe missed out on some parties and everything, but in the scheme of things, I think that was, that was definitely a, a, a good thing because once you get into your late teens and early twenties, you know, one DUI, you could be dead. You know, there, 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 your mistakes could potentially multiply or be permanent as you get older. So if you can prolong the stupid mistakes for a couple of years, that's definitely, definitely not a bad thing. Interesting. You, you took, let's say you took a stance on drinking or was it a stance or was it just that actually it wasn't in your, in your sort of radius? You know, I mean, alcohol was never like in our family. So it's not like, mm-hmm. I think there are some, some families where every night, you know, the father says, Hey, I'm going to have a beer or two or three. And it's just part of the, you know, we were certainly not anti-alcohol, but it just wasn't part of our culture. I mean, I have friends now that they have bourbon every night and it's there. I don't even know that they're alcoholics. It's just part of the routine. Well, that was never part of the routine. Um, I don't know. I mean, there may have been part of me that was always maybe afraid just that, you know, one turns into two, turns into getting in, you know, and partying all the time, turns into dropping out of school, turns into DUI or, you know, so, uh, you know, but, but just never really got into it um, during school. But, uh, and I don't even know that I was that you know, a lot of times what's normal in your world is just what's normal. And you don't know what other people are doing or what's normal in somebody else's world. So where in, in some students' world, it was normal that, uh, you know, you purposefully scheduled an 11 a.m. class so you could drink until four in the morning and then maybe make it to your 11 a.m. class. 
I needed to get my crap done so I could, you know, just by necessity, maybe have my last class of the day being at one so I could, you know, get and get some work done and, and log some hours. So, you know, it, it just, uh, it just never was something that, that, uh, I, it wasn't like I was disciplined that I'm, 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 I'm going to have willpower and not drink. It was just that it, it just really wasn't something that was, that was on the agenda at all for me at that point. So. So tell me, I mean, you, you're eventually coming out into the, the real world. You've, mm-hmm. you've, you've done your study and you got your piece of paper. Where, where'd you head off to? Well, and, and I stayed uh, right at the same tennis club where, where I had played is where, you know, during school I had, uh, you know, taught tennis during, during the summers. So um, normally in a tennis club, there's a director of tennis who kind of manages the department. Then there's a head pro who does um, a lot of the, the teaching. So the head pro job came open and, and that was kind of the, the obvious choice for that. So I actually got that job. Um, and then the director of tennis job came out, which is actually a pretty good paying job, especially, uh, you know, for someone right out of school. Uh, and and th- this was kind of the miracle job because I was, I was qualified in the sense that I knew everybody at the club. And certainly I think my work ethic and reliability wasn't questioned, but as far as, again, being someone who played on the pro tour or anything like that, that just wasn't me. But, um, uh, but you know, they picked me for that job and that was actually a a pretty good, uh, pretty good paycheck at that, uh, at that time of my life. So a little bit of growing pains there because there's, there's always a difference between liking your craft and being good at your craft. So I would venture to say that as far as teaching beginners to intermediates, I was about as good as anybody in teaching tennis. Um, and partially, I think a lot of times like the, the former world-class players, they can't relate with a beginner. So they may not have the patience or, um, you know, the ability to work with beginners, but but we were a resort, so we'd have, you might be in town for a week and might, might take three or four tennis lessons. So kind of my goal there was to help you to improve in, in, in three hours and maybe show you some things that you'd never seen before. And then we also had our local members. So maybe your kids would, would go to a clinic three or four days a week. And uh, obviously we had long-term uh, you know, improvement as a goal there. So I was very good at that. But then the managing of the department and managing of you know, we'd have a couple instructors come in for the summer who were, you know, probably college tennis players. So now you're having to manage people who are at the beach for a summer um, with, you know, some negative intentions of, of what you can do at the beach. So the managing and scheduling and things like that was a little bit of a struggle for sure to kind of be thrown, thrown into that. You know, we have when members the older members typically want the clay cords because they're softer and easier on the body. Well, you know, we only had, a f- there weren't enough clay courts to, to go around. So sometimes saying no to members who may have literally been 30 or 40 years older than you, that's just hard uh, being in that position of kind of the final authority. So uh, there may have been some times that I didn't handle some of that uh, very well because uh, you know, by nature, I'm not the most confrontational person. So I like saying yes to you, but I can't say yes to you and yes to the other person that both want the same thing. I have to say no to one of you. And, and, and uh, especially at that point in life, saying no, is, it's just a hard thing to, to, uh, to do when you, 
almost have a little bit, I won't say almost, when you have a little bit of imposter syndrome, because by a lot of definitions, I should not have had that job just by age, by, by years of experience, by playing ability, and, and even that by management ability. I mean, I've never managed anything. I, I, I was always disciplined personally uh, to a large extent, but, and I always held myself to relatively high standards, but, and even to this day, I find it harder to hold other people to high standards to the same high standards that I try to hold for myself. So, so that was a little bit of a challenge at that point for sure. It's always interesting to see how people, you know, as you say, they get into the world of work, but then also sort of fighting their corner, you know, chasing income, you know, employing people, doing all that. And, and, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're big duties on on sort of young shoulders, if you like to, you know? Yeah. 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 So that, um, it would have been better in the scheme of things, maybe to have a mentor or better mentor for a little while to, to learn a little bit more of the people and management skills uh, and how to, how to, um, you know, sometimes you were divvying up appointment time for, for your, for your um, uh, seasonal tennis pros. So let's say there's three of you who are all in, uh, in, in, in town for the summer to teach tennis lessons. Well, who gets to be the first on call to teach tennis lessons? Well, somebody does and two people don't. And it's, you know, to, to tell the two people that, uh, you know, you're not on the schedule today. So if somebody just signs up for a lesson, it's not going to be with you. If some, you know, buddy staying at the resort calls in, you're not that person. Uh, you know, that's, that's just hard because you can't, again, you can't please everybody and you can't, um, you can't, uh, you know, if I say yes to you, I'm saying no to somebody else. So how did you move on from there then? Well, so, so this is where it gets really, really interesting. So, um, my wife, uh, the angel who, who birthed the two twins, uh, she has a, a, um, a degree in exercise physiology. So she, uh, lived in the same area of, of where the tennis club was. And she, her first job out of college was cardiac rehab, meaning that, um, you know, you had a heart attack, uh, you didn't die. Your doctor sends you to a cardiac rehab facility and, and, and she would teach you, you know, how to eat a little better, teach you a little bit, uh, monitoring exercise and helping you to do the things that you can, that you can do to either prevent the next heart attack or, or, or prolong the next heart attack. And, um, but she also had been an aerobics instructor for, for years. So she was um, um, at the tennis club. There was a, a fitness center also. So she was an aerobics instructor. So, you know, you have the 24, 25 year old tennis guy who was actually in good shape back then. And this was the nineties where tennis shorts were short. And then you had um, the 24, 25 year old aerobics instructor, um, and you know that uh seemed like a seemed like a natural match and uh and darn it we looked good for a little while so she still looks good i don't know what happened to me but um you know i'd always exercise so you know we just had that uh we had that as a um you know as a common common thing and i definitely drew upon her her physiology knowledge you know during during workouts and everything but we really really hit it off and 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 had a really good relationship uh, uh, you know, from the beginning, cause we did have some things in common and, you know, we were, uh, two athletes, you know, kind of in, in athletic careers, uh, in their twenties and, and it was cool. So her parents 
uh, they own a restaurant, a country restaurant in Anderson, which is where we live now. And it's five hours inland in a smaller town. And so her parents own this restaurant where they literally call macaroni and cheese a vegetable. Uh, if you if you if you come to the south of the United States, there's something called a meat and three. And a meat and three restaurant is where you get a meat. Um, which is invariably going to be fried, and then there'll be three vegetables, and and of course macaroni is a vegetable. Uh, they literally put like canned fruit inside of Jello and call that a salad, which literally almost made me vomit. Um, and then you know highly salted and fatted vegetables from a can, they would call that a vegetable. So her parents and this was all. Everybody had good intentions. You know there was it was all. Um, they they kind of would have preferred for their daughter to live in the same hometown. Um, I'm at the point in the tennis teaching career where I'm thinking, you know what? I mean, you know, we're, we're engaged and there's going to be a point where we have a family and, and, you know, does, does, does being on a tennis court from three until nine every day, you know, is that, that's awesome when you're 20 to 25, but you know, you get married and have kids, you know, when are you going to see your kids? So her parents offered us, ownership or partial ownership over 14 years of that restaurant. And, you know, I would run the restaurant and um, Jill was going to go back and get her nursing degree. So kind of the idea was we moved to Anderson five hours inland. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I run this restaurant and uh, get whatever the deal was five or six or 7% per year until we owned it outright. And, um, you know, we would make of it what we made, made of it. So, and again, everybody had good intentions. There was no, there's no negative intentions anywhere, but kind of there are some things in your life where you look back and, and you say, nobody had any bad intentions, but who out of everybody involved thought this would be a good idea, right? So you get a, um, you get a guy who, and we'll go back just a little bit. So, so, you know, we talked about in college, I didn't really have that much fun. Well, after graduating for about three years, I had some buddies and we had a lot of fun. Um, and you know, the liquid kind of fun that, uh, uh, you know, can create liver damage. So we, you know, I spent, you know, living at the beach, there was two or three years where there was, you know, I, I, you know, I don't even know if it was, I may have subconsciously said, you know, I'm going to make up for some lost time. So, you know, we just, you know, we did the nightclub thing and the bar hopping thing. And, but I had some just really cool dude drinking buddies, the kind of guys that, you know, were just fun. And, and at that point in your life, um, you know, partying and all that. I mean, there's, there's no long-term benefit, but, but there's no question that, you know, you can have a lot of fun uh, in, in your twenties living at the beach. So you know, we go from that to living, to leaving, leaving the dudes, leaving the buddies um, to moving to a smaller town, to running a small country restaurant where these two older ladies who are both in their seventies, were going to be who I'm around all day. And then kind of the kitchen staff, and everything. So I'm hanging out with, I go from hanging out with my buddies, you know, pretty much hung over most of the day, then take a nap, you know, then go out drinking. Now I'm um, kind of working in this, in this small country restaurant and the restaurant in this small town did a very, very good business. I mean, there's a line every day. So it was a very established restaurant, but um, so you had that as kind of a, holy crap, what made anybody think this was going to be a good idea? I was a health nut back then. I mean, other than the liquid part, uh, you know, after after 11, but I was always kind of, you know, going to try to eat reduced 
fats to the extent that I can and, and, and vegetables and exercise. So you get there to where literally you go to a restaurant where they eat fat back, which is fried fat on a biscuit. Yeah. And, and I'll never forget this older, and this is just a culture. It's not a good or bad thing, but this older guy comes in and he like, he looks at me and, and the waitress who had been working there for probably 30 years with like love and thankfulness in his eyes. And he says, yeah, I just, you know, I had my bypass surgery and all I could think about is these fat back biscuits. So this, you know, that's the first place I came, you know, and I'm like, you're eating fried fat. That's why you had the bypass surgery. So there was some, I don't want to say an ethical objection, but you can't, I don't, and I ate the food, but there were, it was a buffet and there were certain items on the buffet that I just never did eat or never would eat just because, you know, you shouldn't eat fried fat. You just shouldn't. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that I felt great about seeing what people would eat, you know, I mean, um, and, and so, you know, there was that, um, you know, my mother-in-law is a wonderful woman, but there, there maybe were one or two or 38,000 power struggles between me and her. And, you know, not saying she's right, I'm wrong, not saying I'm right, she's wrong. It's just the, the complete management of the restaurant was never going to be handed over. It just wasn't. And, and that's okay. And I know that was kind of her baby and, um, and, but it, it wasn't going to be handed over. So, you know, there just came a point a year or a year and a half into it where it just, you know, all parties just kind of agreed, you know what, this just isn't, you know, I mean, I grew up in New York. I just, you know, was working at a tennis club. Now I'm working at a small country restaurant. Um, you know, there's nobody within 35 years of my age. Um, I would, this is just not the place I would go to eat. I mean, the food was delicious, but um, you know, nobody came in the door that wasn't 40, 50, hundred pounds overweight. So it just, it wasn't me, you know what I mean? It, it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't bad. It just wasn't me. So, um, you know, started just kind of looking, looking around for some, some other, other options. And, you know, we, we were all open about it and, and there wasn't, um, you know, she allowed me to kind of stay on for as long as needed and until I found, you know, whatever I was going to find. And, you know, I, I continue to do the same quality of work that I felt, you know, I, I could do. And so it, it was very cordial, but I think all parties were just, when that ended, it was just kind of like, yeah, that, that, um, and even my wife's sister said, I told you there was no way this could possibly work. It just, you know, just at that stage in life, I mean, I was like a cool 25 year old that had the coolest job in the world. And then you go from that to working in a small restaurant and it just, you know, it, it was just, and, and nobody really, I don't consider it a mistake. I just consider it something that happened. And, and when everybody involved saw that it just wasn't right, it just wasn't the fit. Then we all kind of moved on and, and did it, did it the right way. So so I did a couple things and then I, and that was kind of a salary deal, but we were, you know, in theory, we were going to get ownership. So there are ways that I could kind of put my entrepreneurial uh, mind at work and, you know, maybe think about how do we increase profit margins and everything. And, um, but then I, I met a guy who ran, um, he was a district manager for, for, for a, a pharmacy chain and just met him at the gym and, and, you know, we just became, became friends and, he um super nice guy and his districts won all kinds of awards and they were very profitable and had highest sales and everything. And 
I learned a lot from him about excellence. And he actually said, you know, he said something that was very pointy. He's like, you need, sometimes in life when you, when you meet the right people, they can just make things happen. So we don't have a job open right now, but I'm going to make a job if you'd like to be an assistant manager at one of our stores and kind of work your way up to where you're a district manager at a point and, you know, making big money and everything. So, um, got a job as an assistant manager at a, at a pharmacy chain and this is in retail and there's a badge of honor in, in retail at least in the united states on who can work the most hours or, or be there not actually work but you know and there's the open to close thing that all these managers well i worked open to close and i'm like yeah but you didn't do anything so why don't you like literally just get your crap done and then go home and not have this i worked more than you badge of honor um so that was kind of the last position I had where it was just salary. Um, there's, I didn't have much control over anything and that just didn't work with my, with my personality. Um, you know, when the manager was around, you, you pretty much went home when she said you can go home and it's like, so you, you just, so that lasted a year, two years. And, um, you know, it just, the salary position just kind of didn't work for me. And it didn't matter how much the salary was. And then, um, you know, just being under, working in a big corporation, there's just too much that wasn't under my control for better or for worse. Um, obviously a huge corporation has more resources than I'll ever have. But um, if they say you get a 3% raise, you get a 3% raise. If they say you take a 5% pay cut, you take a 5% pay cut. So um you know, again, not, not good, not bad, just wasn't for me. Um, the district manager that made the position for me, you know, I, I thanked him and, and it was very cordial again. And, and again, I'm 26, 27 at the point. So who knows what they want to do with life at that point. But, um, you know, debating on which manager of which store can work the most hours. And of course, not me because I don't do this, but you know, they would take smoke breaks literally like half the day. So, you know, it's like, don't take smoke breaks. You can get your work done. Then you can go home and guess what? You can see your family and you can have a life. And, 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 you know, that culture was just hours, 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 hours worked. And I just, and I work hours. I mean, I work a lot of hours, but I think they need to be productive hours and just being at work and working are two very different things for sure. So. It's always, it's amazing there, as you say, even in an early age, you've discovered that, you know, input doesn't equal output, you know, and it's, it's just, you know, cutting through all the traditional stuff that people go through and going, I've got to be seen. And as you say, it's the badge of honor of going, yeah, what, where does that come from? And, and is that, is it insecurity or what? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think we all have, we all need an identity and, in certain corporate type jobs, the identity can't be that I make a lot of money because, you know, you may be kind of middle income, but your, your identity is not the, the, the $100,000 Mercedes that you can afford because you can't afford it. So the, the, the next, you know, badge of honor might be, well, I work more than you. I'm a harder worker. And, and again, it's not work. It's being at work. But because nobody really, you really can't work 12 hours a day consistently. You're just, it, you can't. Now, if you had to, you know, you could work tomorrow for 12 hours, but you still, as the day goes on, you get less and less productive. So you, you just, it's, it's impossible um, to, to be productive for, for that long. So, 
you know, and, and I didn't have any of that growing up. You know, there was no, um, you know, go get a corporate job and just work for 30 years and get a pension type mentality. So, you know, and, and I think we're all, our money philosophy and our career philosophies, a lot of times are, they're shaped by what we see growing up. Either we want to be like that or even the opposite, like we don't want to be like our parents. I mean, there, I think there are plenty of people that have workaholic parents that say, hey, when I grow up, whether I make money or not, I'm not going to miss my kids' games because however much money my parents made, it wasn't worth it. So, so yeah, so I, you know, I, I just, I, I didn't feel like the, the, the corporate kind of just who can be at work longer. That just didn't work for me. So started looking around and this is where we kind of get into the, the migration of, of almost what I'm, what I'm doing now. So I had always what had an interest in money and, and not necessarily dollars and cents, but you know, why do you have more money than, than, than I do? Or, 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 you know, how do you, how, how is it that this other person is making their money work and they have what appears to be an easier lifestyle and some more creature comforts or more ability to take care of their kids? And, and I listened to, uh, I remember the Bob Brinker money talk as I was driving in college for hours and hours at a time from work to school. And it was just fascinating by the stock market and things like that. So, and I had no experience like that. I mean, my parents didn't have investments or anything. So there's no, no experience so there was a local insurance agency who was hiring um, a um, a financial sales representative. So interviewed for that, and you know she just fell in love with me in the sense that I said all the right things that I wanted to grow and and, and learn and do the difficult things and and have control over my income. So you know I got that job, got my licenses for insurance, for car insurance, for home insurance, for life insurance, and also got the investment credentials to where uh, you know if you had some money to invest or if you left the job and you needed to roll over your retirement, I um, I was qualified to do that, and that was kind of my job there. So really saw the opportunity of, wow, you know, if, you know, the, let, let's say there was, you know, a, a reasonable investment account and, you know, you make a thousand or $2,000 off that. I mean, that, that's good money when you're 26, 27. And then of course, when you're kind of ambitious, you're like, well, I can do this three times a week because, and obviously, you know, I couldn't, but, you know, you start, you know, multiplying and doing math calculations. Well, you know, if I did one this month, I can do two next month. And if I can get to where, uh, you know, so I read sales books on sales pipelines and sales activity and really did dive into that. And, and I saw that this, this, the owner of the business was doing very well financially. I mean, very well. And, um, we had maybe some different business philosophies and, and again, not that hers is wrong and mine is right, but, um, you know, the business existed a little bit more for her benefit, not for the team's benefit. And, um, but, um, so I learned from her, I learned, um, you know, both, you know, systems and processes. And I also learned just kind of nuts and bolts of the industry. And then I went out on my own, um, because, you know, certainly was not, um, you know, the, the, there's part of me that says, well, you know, she's getting a little piece of everything that I'm selling. Now, of course, the other part of me didn't acknowledge she was providing space and paying payroll taxes and providing computer and, and all the other expenses that, that are involved. But, um, you know, she shouldn't get a piece of what I'm selling. Um, so I went out on my own with, uh, with a large life insurance carrier. 
and that also offered investments and um, thought, you know, I don't need a base salary. I mean, we, you know, I've already said that salaries are not cool because they, they restrict you and bind you. Right. So I'm going to go out commission only no base and I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make a million dollars. Well, that is a really, really hard thing to do. Um, you know, your, your marketing plan was make a list of everybody, you know, and, you know, call them and ask them to buy life insurance. And I believe in life insurance and, and did at the time, but when you're 26 or 27 and you live in a different town where you did, um, it's hard to do. So let's say you might've been one of my buddies and maybe you just got married and had a baby. And let's say you buy a $40 per month life insurance policy. Well, yeah, that's going to pay me two or $300 and then that's it. Um, so two or $300 is awesome, except for you need several of those per week consistently to, 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 to survive. So, you know, I mean, I did okay, but it was really tough and, and, um, uh, learned, you know, learned a lot about the industry. And then, you know, another kind of one of those fork in the road miracles came along where, um, a local insurance agency, um, about 25 miles from, from where I live, they, um, they literally put an ad in the paper that the agent was retiring and they were looking for someone to interview to, to kind of buy the agency. But of course they had to approve it. So I applied for that and, um, uh, you know, put my best sales pitch forward. And I do remember saying when I interviewed that I will give them no option, but to pick me. I mean, they will, you know, whatever. So I showed up with, uh, you know, marketing plans that they didn't ask for, um, showed up with quite a few things that, that they didn't ask for that, uh, showed some, some, uh, or sh actually showed a lot of, of thought and, and planning. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, I was chosen to kind of take over that agency, had to take out a big loan to pay for the book of business. So it wasn't like a job per se, where there was a salary, but, but there was, you know, already at least some, a small book of business and, um, you know, so that's, that's what, uh, kind of, kind of, I've been, I've been doing, um, uh, and, and we'll get a little bit more into it, but my, 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 my passion was kind of building an investment in financial planning book of business. And this, you know, at least in the beginning was more home and auto insurance. So there've been a lot of, um, branding kind of issues that I've been working on to be seen as, uh, as a multi, um, not just seen as a car insurance agency. So, but yeah, so that, that was Oh five. So that's been going, going for a good while. So we survived. Yeah. I mean, and through, I mean, in Oh five, right through obviously Oh seven, eight, nine, um, pretty tough times, but yeah. yeah. In the insurance world, I mean, there is, the, um, if I'm right in saying there's, there's a lot of potential re residual income through mm -hmm. renewals and stuff like that. So it's, it's a compounding effect when you're into these agencies, right? It is, it is. But, um, so, you know, let's say, you know, we insured your home and your home and your auto. Um, you know, we might as an office make $200 a year off of you. So if you're a high maintenance customer that every month you're calling because, you know, you need to make a change your credit card number because somebody stole your credit card and, you know, that's, you know, potentially we're doing a lot of work to make that $200. Um, so, so yes, there is that and there is residual and as you grow, it definitely is a good thing. And let's say next year you buy another car. So now your insurance premiums go up. So we're getting 
a piece of a bigger pie. And then maybe the next year, the carrier raises your rate, just a general rate increase. So now your rate went up by 5%. So, you know, basically we're making 5% more money off of you as well. So, so yeah, the residuals are definitely there. Um, um, what my goal is and, and, and was and has been is to, you know, provide very, very high quality insurance products and service and also have me be the financial planner that would also work with, you know, you and your family potentially on your investments and your savings and your tax planning and, and things like that. So, so while I was at the previous insurance agency, I started working on my CFP, the certified financial planner, because I wanted to differentiate myself, um, you know, and, and, and I think credentials, at least I felt like it would give me confidence and, and, and having not come from money, you know, they're, they're, maybe a little imposter syndrome. So I felt like the credentials would give me the legitimate knowledge, but also uh, some, some confidence. So, so shortly after, I guess it was six months or a year after I took over my agency, I, I passed the CFP exam. So then, you know, I, I became a certified financial planner, which, um, which interestingly created a lot of different issues because I, I had this pull um, and, and I really just in the last two years kind of, solve the, the poll problem is you have your, your insurance customers that you, you have to serve and you have to serve well. And when your name is on the sign for better, or for worse, a lot of the customers, they just want to talk to me. Um, they want to make a payment. Well, we have two other people who are very capable of typing your name in and saying, yes, you owe a hundred dollars and then giving you a receipt. But of course, you know, sometimes people want to speak with the owner and the, and if the owner's not a good manager and a good delegator, the owner takes those calls and then the owner ends up doing a lot of the work that the owner shouldn't be doing. So I spent a lot of years doing work that I shouldn't necessarily be doing and not enough time going after the big profitable accounts that, um, that now I am going after and, 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 and are getting quite frankly. So um, so it's been, a, it's been an interesting, interesting journey for sure. Well, I mean, insurance is this, is it's, uh, I suppose, again, I'm, I'm slightly, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, again, you, you're sort of, you're upselling in your opportunity. So you're mm -hmm. taking an opportunity, um, you know, back right back to the tennis lessons, you know, and you've got a bigger, bit of wiggle room, I'm sure on, on the actual fees, but then if you can, upsell you can bring in more options more add-ons things like that so you kind of really insurance is probably a great game to do that with you know as you say you've you've got life you've got car insurance you've got health insurance you got oh yeah yeah everybody there's some sort of insurance policy that they probably need um because insurance is, is very important so so just to give you an example um if, if, if you have a home and if you have a car, you know, typically you'll have car insurance and home insurance. Well, if you cause, let's say, a five-car pileup and there maybe, maybe your car insurance has $100,000 of liability. So once your car insurance pays $100,000, which isn't that much money when you're dealing with injuries, you know, then you're responsible for the rest, right? So now let's say the total injury medical bills for everybody is a million dollars. Well, your car insurance company wrote a million dollar, uh, wrote a hundred thousand dollar check. And now you're on the hook for the other $900,000 because, and, and your insurance company didn't do anything wrong. They just paid out what, what the policy said. 
So, you know, many cases you should have an umbrella policy, which would give you another million or $2 million of coverage. And that policy would literally be 150 to $200 a year. So almost, you know, price of a, of, of a, of a small meal per, per month. And now you have another million or $2 million of coverage and people just don't know about these kind of things. So there's a tremendous amount of upselling opportunities as well. Um, and just a little inside insurance industry information is companies give bonuses at the end of the years based on loss ratios, which is how well your book of business has performed with claims and then growth and other factors. And some of these bonuses can be large and, and other years you may not get a bonus. So it's kind of, you know, you can't plan on it, but when they happen, they're, they're a good thing. So every, every dollar of, of premium um, helps uh, for sure. But um you know, the person sometimes that you hire to run the front desk to take payments and things. And again, it's not a good or bad, it's not a right or wrong, but the reason that they work at the front desk is not because they're entrepreneurial. The reason they work at the front desk is because, you know, the 10 or $12 an hour job is what brings them fulfillment and they don't necessarily want to take risk and they're not even necessarily financially driven. So for them to upsell, you know, the discomfort of saying, Hey, Peter, do you want to buy this other policy? And let me explain what it does. And it's really important. The discomfort of doing that is not outweighed by the comfort of getting the extra few dollars in commission because they're not financially driven people. So, you know, having, because we're all driven, driven by, by something. Um, and, and even if you're not per se driven by the actual dollars, you're driven by what the dollars can do for you and do for your family. So, you know, finding service people that can help customers, but also have the mentality to be able to upsell is a challenge. And, um, but, 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 you know, I wholeheartedly believe in the insurance business because what it does is all insurance does is protect your money. So if you cause me to have a loss, either you're paying for my loss or an insurance company is paying for my loss. So which one would you rather have pay for the loss? You or the insurance company. Um, so insurance protects wealth. Um, for sure. And that actually, I mean, talk to us about, cause it leads in a bit to your podcast. I mean, you, you're, and even as you're explaining things, you, you explain them in a very open way. You know, you're talking about sort of industry um, knowledge, you know, what's happening and things like that. So teaching, you know, and you mentioned teaching right back at the start as well. It's always been a yeah, yeah. passion. So I've always, I've always hated the word sell because, um, selling kind of insinuates that I'm manipulating it, you into do something that's not in your best interest that you don't want to do. Mm. So, um, and, and that's, that's not what I do. So kind of my goal, especially when I was working actively in the home and auto insurance business, I, I'm not really writing home insurance policies anymore. Um, and, and we'll get into that later, but, but back in the, in the days where maybe you just picked up the phone and, and called, you found our office, you know, either online and you said, Hey, I'm with XYZ company. They raised my rate. I want to get a quote. So back when I was the person who was quoting you, I would ask questions like, well, what's making you shop around? Um, and then maybe you, you know, I'd ask you what, what levels of coverage do you have? And, and you might be looking at the paper that tells you, but you don't know what they mean because nobody knows what they mean. Um, so then I would, you maybe say, well, here, let me explain before we even get started. Let me tell you a little bit about our office. We believe in a holistic uh, method of planning. Um, and we also believe that it's our job to help you to put you in a better position 
um, either by price or coverage or both. We would love to save you money, but sometimes, quite frankly, our, we have customers coming to us and they end up spending more money because what they had was not what they really needed once they understood that. So with that being said, um, right now, based on what you sent me, um, I'm not showing that you have rental car coverage. So if you were to hit a deer, and we have a lot of deer around here, and your car was in the shop for two weeks, would you need for us to provide you with a rental car so you can get to and from work? Or would you be okay? Do you have an extra car or do you live within walking distance? So now, what is, what is your answer to that question right now? Would you need for us to give you a rental car or would you be okay paying $30 a day or would you not need a car for a week or two? So, so what is your honest answer to that, to that answer, to that question? For me, I suppose it would be, I'd rather the convenience of a car. Okay. So great. So for, you know, I plug it in. Okay. For, for an extra $17 every six months, we're going to, you know, would you like me to add on that rental car coverage? And would that be worth it for you to pay that $17 for that peace of mind? Sure. So the answer is either yes or no. So I'm not making you do anything, but I also don't want you calling and yelling at me two years from now when you hit a deer and you're like, well, how come I don't have a rental car? Well, remember I made a note here and you said you didn't want the rental car. So that's kind of my, my way of selling is just explaining, you know, um, I, I, I tell clients, I have basically three jobs. I have uh, to look and see if there, use my expertise to see if there's any holes in your coverage. And I can guarantee that there are, I mean, I don't tell people that, but everybody has holes because, because this isn't what they do every day. Um, my goal is to show them how to fill the holes. Okay. So you have twin two-year-olds. Um, God forbid, if you don't make it home, they still need money to live. So I would, you know, just generically talk to you about life insurance per se. And then my third job is to tell you how much it costs to fill the holes. And then you have one job to say yes or no. And that's always been a very soft way of, of selling. And, um, you know, there may be one area of your life that you're okay with self-insuring. Um, let's say hypothetically you live a half mile from work, so you don't need that rental car. You could walk, you know, if you didn't have a car for a week, you could walk and get some exercise. So guess what? Yeah. You don't need that coverage. I'm not going to talk you into it. I don't need to talk you into it. I told you, you know, you made the decision to not have that coverage and I'm totally okay with that. Um, there are other areas where you might say, wow, I didn't realize that if this happened, I wouldn't have any coverage. So yeah, let's do it. Let's cover that. So that's, that's always been kind of my, my selling philosophy is, is kind of define the problem, tell how to fix the problem, tell what it's going to cost to fix the problem, and then ask you, do you want to fix this problem? And then of course you, you have the full authority to say yes or no. And I don't play word games after that. If you say, no, I don't really, you know, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I just don't have it in the budget to pay for that. Or that's not that much of a concern for me. Okay, great. Let's move on to the next one and let me, you know, give you whatever education. So, so that's kind of my selling philosophy per se, um, that no talking into, um, because ultimately you need to buy what's right for you that you want to buy, not what I think is right for you. And also the customer, you never know what their financial situation is. You never know what their ability to pay for anything is. Sometimes people look like they have a lot of money, you know, they're, 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 they're so leveraged that they have little to no discretionary income. Um, so, you know, I never want to put someone in an awkward position where they feel like they have to say yes to something that they really can't afford.
because that's not necessarily my business unless we're in a deep financial planning relationship. So, I mean, the theme that keeps coming through for me is, you know, control and choice, control and choice. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, your background is such as saying, not that it was that bad, but also there was, you know, there's, there's areas where, you know, you could have had more and things like that. So that's, you know, the control part is now giving you that and the insurance industry seems to be doing that for you. The mm-hmm. choice is, what are you choosing to do? Are you going to opt in, opt out? But again, it's free will, free choice. But again, that's something you've set out to do. Is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's very, I, I think that's a, a great observation that, you know, I, I like choice. I like having some, some say. And, um, you know, again, it, there are a few, you know, in my little office, for better, or for worse, I mean, I'm in charge. So I don't, I mean, I understand all customers ultimately are the boss, but I mean, when you've gone, you know, when you put yourself in a position or a position was put in front of you where you don't necessarily have a boss, that's a great place to be, but it also can be burdensome when things are not going well. So, you know, when I worked for the big um, pharmacy chain, let's say the computer would have blown up. Right. So there was some way that you would ask someone, hey, we need a new computer and a computer would show up. Um, or if the freezers that hold ice cream, if they didn't work, well, there was some vendor that would come and fix it. Well, now if my computer blows up, I have to have the money to buy a new one or I have to figure out how to fix it or I have to have the money to fix to 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 pay someone to fix it. So control is kind of a double-edged sword when things are going well it's awesome um when when you have some struggles then yeah it's like well crap there's no one to help with this and i have to figure it out and uh that can that can be hard when things are when things are not going well for mm. sure well that circles back to what you were saying earlier you know it's it's potential versus risk right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you know, what, yeah what you what you choose yeah yeah so and, and i guess you know, looking back from as far back as I can remember, I don't know that it was a conscious choice, but I think I always chose the the um, the potential over the safety for for just about just about everything. And 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 maybe the one time that I chose the safety over the potential, which was working for the pharmacy chain, it just just from a I just couldn't deal with it. And again, it wasn't bad. Nobody did anything wrong. Nobody broke any labor laws. It was just, you know this just doesn't work for my personality. I just can't show up, go home and the same paycheck is coming every single week. That just doesn't make sense to me. So, and, and you know, and, and I believe um, everybody everywhere, no matter where you work should have some sort of a, of a commission or a bonus or something that's, that's, that could be significant depending on your position. So if you're a janitor, um, somehow, you know, maybe incentivize the janitor to, if the floors are mopped to a certain level, you get this extra amount of money that is noticeable, you know, not, not a, you know, a two cent per hour raise, but something noticeable to where, you know, cause I, I think at least the way my mind works and, and maybe everybody's mind doesn't work, or maybe they all do to some extent, but, uh, you know, we all need motivation to go out of our comfort zone or else you could just kind of sit and play on Facebook all day, you know, at your office when you're quote working, but you're really not working. You're playing on Facebook. It's interesting. And recently, you know, hearing to someone about, you know, what makes a, a trader when they're talking about trading stocks and shares and things like that, you know, and 
and they were sort of saying, you know, you've two types, you've, you've a greed based trader and you've got a, a fear based trader, you know, and depending on, which I thought was interesting in the same, you can stim, you can simulate it till you're blue in the face, but you put the first trade on, you'll know exactly what you are. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting when you maybe apply that to business, you know, it's, it's, uh, because again, I'm, I'm struck by your sort of control, your choice. You understand exactly what's, what it is, your options, and you, you make a decision and that's it. Carry on. Well, and one thing that I've, that I've always done is I've always read business books. And um, when I discovered podcasts, I've listened to all the podcasts and podcasts didn't exist. Uh, um, but I, you know, I've always driven a lot. I've always, for whatever reason, I've had reasons to drive. So, you know, I'm, you know, even like in college and after, like I had audiobooks, cassettes that, that I would listen to. And, and, you know, when you're 23, not that many people are listening to audiobooks in, in, the, in their car as they're driving. So I, I've always, and when you listen to the authors that have achieved business greatness, you start seeing that, you know, a lot of these people, they have some of the same philosophies and, and mentalities. And, and I started, you know, I think I started to feed on that, uh, feed on that a little bit. So, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think we all have to have our philosophies and I think that we all have to uh, try to build a life that to the extent that we can fits our philosophy. Um, and, and, and we can look at the other side. I mean, my wife, I don't know that she would ever be incredibly comfortable running a business. Um, you know, she's a, she's a school nurse now. So her paycheck's the same every week. Um, it'll never not be there. Um, it'll never be big, but it provides benefits and everything else. So now that's a great thing for our family because if business on my end ever takes a turn, you know, we have, we do have guaranteed on her end. So it is a, it's a good way to balance each other out. But, um, you know, our business checking account, sometimes there's a whole lot of money in there. Sometimes there's very, very little money in there. And, um, you know, that, that, that does take that, that mindset to be able to be able to deal with, uh, you know, kind of the ups and ups and downs for sure. Talks about passive income. Yeah. You know, that's something that I, I have, um, not gotten into as much as I would, uh, as I would like. But if, if you look at, you know, kind of our, our team here, um, in, in my early career, I was the, I don't want to say soul, but the 95% revenue producer. So if there was a new dollar coming into the office, there was probably a 95% chance that it was my efforts that generated that dollar. Well, guess what happens? You know, once a year you go out of town for a week and sales go down to literally almost zero. And that's, that's not good for the budget, but it's also not good just for the mentality. I mean, that, that kind of weighs on you, that, you know, holy crap, you know, uh, you know, as human beings, we can train ourselves to say always and never and always or never or never always or never true. But it's easy to tell yourself, always when I leave, sales are never as good as when I'm there, uh, which partly is my fault because I need to train people to, to have processes. But partly, uh, you know, it, it's, it can be mentally draining. So jumping forward, uh, my contract changed back in 2018. And I was able to become not captive on financial services and financial planning. 
meaning that um, the insurance company, uh, and these are just kind of terms that may not make that much sense, but the insurance company that we're associated with, they had a broker dealer and the broker dealer basically is who you sell investments through. So if you had some money to invest, you would have uh, purchased uh, an investment through me. I would have made a commission and you know, your money would have started to grow or go down depending on, on the time. Well, there was a contractual change and I was able to break free and I joined a financial planning firm for a lot of reasons, but it gave me, excuse me, it gave me enhanced capabilities and it gave me the chance to have a little bit less compliance because I always wanted to podcast and, and, and compliance wise, I was not able to do that until I, I broke free. But in 2000, um, uh, so, so uh, a little over a year ago, I kind of made an emotional switch to where I basically said, I am no longer involved with the day-to-day operations of customer service on the insurance side. So if you call in and you need to make, let's say you bought a new car over the weekend and you just need, hey, I sold my Ford and I need to add my Chevy on. In the past, I would have handled that but to be honest, I could train you in three minutes how to log in and type in a VIN number and be friendly and print out a piece of paper. It's not a high skill position. Now, we do need to pro- provide great service and people need to like us and they have the, have the warm and fuzzies. And, and honestly, sometimes that presents an upsell. So if you bought a nice new car, maybe we talk to you about life insurance because maybe now you have a loan and if you didn't make it home, maybe your family didn't want to be burdened with that loan. But bottom line is that's not rocket science and somebody other than me could do that. So I made a very um, a very conscious shift to be to say, I am not going to be the lead source of revenue on property and casualty insurance. And I'm going to spend more and more and more of my time and efforts building our financial planning book of business. So in a sense, the property and casualty book of business has become passive income. Now I do want to, you know, look at some, some outside real estate rental properties and things like that, but, um, uh, hadn't hadn't happened to the extent that I would uh, like for it to happen but but now we have many more sales happening that I have nothing to do with so in a sense that's passive income tell me in in terms of your podcast what's what's your mission yeah so the podcast is is has an interesting mission so i'm in a small town and people still kind of look at me as the car insurance guy. So I wanted, you know, the weekly wealth podcast, I wanted to put out as a branding tool. Um, and, and we talk about our tagline is the mindsets, tactics, and strategies to help you to build wealth. So we talk about investment strategies. We talk about insurance strategies. We, you know, we've had business coaches. We, we talk about a lot of different tangible and, and, and intangible ways to help you to build and maintain growth, uh, wealth. So part of it is branding. Um, part of it is, I just think it's cool and fun. And, and um, I just enjoy talking to kind of like-minded, cool people like you. And, and honestly, I'm learning a little bit about podcasting by seeing how you're doing, how, how you're handling this. So this is awesome. Um, and then also it's a, it's a prospecting tool. So let's say that um, one of my financial planning clients uh, mentions that uh, 
you had you had just some financial concerns. Maybe you're worried about the stock markets, or or maybe uh, you know you you've just mentioned that you you have some some fears about paying for college later on. So I'm building up a library of content. So now I could email you and say, hey, you know, your friend John mentioned uh, that he's a good friend of yours. And, and when you were playing golf the other day, uh, you were just talking about, hey, the stock markets have gone down and you're not sure if your investments are in the right spot. So if you have a moment, take a listen to this podcast about our firm's investment uh, philosophy and uh, maybe we should get together and, and just talk and see if we're a good fit. So then, you know, there would be a 30-minute podcast that I did with our chief investment officer that talks about uh, the QRLT process that we use, which is quality securities, um, rules-based, um, liquid, and tax-sensitive uh, um, uh, uh, philosophy. And, you know, if you listen to that podcast, and if that resonated with you, that would kind of put you that much closer to... Um, becoming a client if we're a good fit. And if you listen to the podcast and you said, you know what? I don't know why, but I just don't like these people. Well, hey, that's fine also because then neither one of us are going to waste time. So trying to build a library of content that I can have a podcast on almost any subject you can imagine that can go to a, a prospect as kind of an opening, uh, as, a, as an icebreaker. Um, the other thing that I'm in the process of, of putting together is... Uh, when you go to the weeklywealthpodcast.com, um, um, I'm working on putting together a, a, a pop-up that'll ask you for your name and your email because it's all about uh, building the list uh, to sign up for our five-part mini course, a mini video course that that uh, a visitor would uh, would would get introduced to. So we're gonna we're putting together a five-part mini video course on the five biggest mistakes that you might be making now that you could could avoid. And they're going to be both tangible, but intangible type, um, type, type mistakes. And then, so then we get your name, we get your email, we provide some quality content, and then we stay in front of you. And then the theory is at a point, you are going to feel like you need a, a financial planner. Well, I should be the obvious choice at that point. Well, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it is list building, it's compounding, it's adding value, it's creating choice, you know, and, and, uh, getting control so um no i mean it's I, I love the way it's all sort of seems to be you know pulling together for you and making total sense mm-hmm. so tell me this what's what's your superpower then my superpower wow that's that's a really that's a really good question um i think that for people that are motivatable i think i'm a very good motivator and i think that i can help I can help clients and students to, to uh, the clients and students that want to achieve greatness. I can, I can help them to achieve greatness and I can, I can help you to build on your own desires. Now, a weakness of mine is let's say you're a team member that's not motivated. I'm horrible with unmotivated people because I just don't understand unmotivated people. And if you show up for work four days in a row, 15 minutes late, like I don't even know what to say. I don't know how to coach that. And then it ends up where I have bitterness and resentment and I kick the dog when I get home and then you end up just getting fired and maybe we could have fixed it, but you know, we just didn't. So, um, you know, John Wooden, who was the coach of the UCLA basketball team and they had the greatest, um, uh, dynasty of maybe any sports team ever. 
uh, he was asked, how do you motivate your players? He said, I don't. You don't make it on my team unless you're one of the most motivated people you've ever met. I fine tune. I fine tune greatness. And I think I, think I can fine tune greatness, but um, if you don't at least have that base level of, of desire to succeed, whether it's as a team member of ours or, or with your own finances, then um, I don't work well with the victims of the world. You know, the people that are just victims, you know, I'm poor because of the rich people or I'm poor because Bill Gates makes too much money or I'm poor because of the Democrats or the Republicans or, or whoever. No, you know, if you live in America, you're poor because of the compounding effect of, of years and years of decisions. And that sucks because that's true for me too. And there are times and there are areas of my life where I, where I am not where I want to be. And I can blame who's the president or who's not president, or I could blame a lot of things, but ultimately, you know, we have to show up and, and do, and do the right things or else our results will, will, will show it for sure. Love it. I, I could talk to you for so long. I've, I've two final questions, if I may. It's one is, what's a guilty pleasure? Oh man, you are really you're you're giving the good ones. Um, a weekend nap. I love a weekend nap. Uh, the occasional weekend nap where you don't have to set an alarm, I think, is just just one of those things. Um, just to 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 get in the bed and and and, and take a nap. Life is busy. Uh, you know, having twins and, and having a 17 year old in business and everything else. So, um, you know, we don't, we don't always get to get to slow down and smell the roses. So I, I love me a, a weekend nap. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I can, I can just imagine that. And if you were to describe, you know, your fire in the belly in one or two words, what, what would it be? I think fear of at the end of the day, you know, there's that proverbial deathbed, you know, being on that deathbed and say, I could have, or I should have, whatever that could have or should have is. And it's not all about money. It's, it's about time with family. It's about, um, you know, maybe, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. We had a client and we're in the Southern part of the United States, which especially in previous generations, there's a lot of racial prejudice. And there was, you know, a black guy that came in and, and he was maybe, I mean, legitimately retarded or, or a mental issue, very slow, but I always felt like, and, and I hope this doesn't come out the wrong way, but as, as a white person, I always felt like he thought it was very important that I was a white guy that was not, and I legitimately liked this guy. So it wasn't that I looked at him differently, but he kind of made a few jokes about a rich white man, you know, and, and um, I just thought that it was important to him to maybe cure some of the racial racial injustices that had happened that what he perceived as a rich white guy who probably didn't have nearly as much money as he thought he did um, just be nice and be his friend. So, you know, just taking time out of my day for years and this guy actually passed away. Um, you know, I, I, I can look back and say, you know, this was one or two of the times where, you know, this, I just felt like I, this guy who probably had a hard life as, as a, as, as an African-American in the South, you know, had at least one white person who treated him like he was just, just a person, not a black person, not a white person, but a person. 
and, you know, goofed around with him a little bit when he came in the office. So, you know, I think life is about influencing. I think life is about making friends and, 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 and love and, and, and certainly money is, is, is a tool to make all of that happen. But, but I think a fear to look back, you know, when you're on that proverbial deathbed and say, you know, I could have, and I should have, and, and I didn't. So. No, very poignant and, and so it makes so much sense. So tell us, I mean, um, how can people hunt you down, track you down, follow you, get involved? Yeah. So the, the, the easiest way is, uh, www.weeklywealthpodcast.com. You can see all of our episodes uh, there and, and uh, I have a contact link and also a, um, a calendar link. I do, uh, with technology and everything, I, I have clients all over the place. I have clients that I've never met in person. So uh, I, I do always make the offer for a 30 minute, just conversation, whether in person or over Zoom, just to talk about uh, where your financial situation is. And, and, you know, sometimes that may mean becoming a client. Sometimes it may mean, you know what, you just need to pay off some debt and there's really nothing to invest. And, you know, here's some baby steps and maybe do these and let's touch base in six months or, um, but, but looking at, you know, how, how, how the individual can use money as a tool to have the life that they want. And, and, and sometimes that involves a financial product or an investment. And sometimes it involves a behavior um, or, or some combination of, of both. Um, I'm also on, on Facebook and uh, you can find me on Twitter as well. It's uh, uh, D Chudik, uh, D C H U D Y K on, on Twitter as well. And my email, David at parallel Awesome. David, I know we could talk all day. So listen, I, I thank you for your time and thank you for sharing your story. And uh, yeah, I look forward. I'm sure we'll, t- we'll touch base again in the future. So thank you. Well, thank you. And this was actually valuable, valuable to me to, to listen to myself talk and, uh, and uh, hear my own thought process. So I appreciate it. Valuable for me. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.